guys. Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's so good to be here with you in God's presence, celebrating God's faithfulness. I love that song. It's the only song I think I know that I can actually sing harmony to. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is... You probably don't want to hear that. Okay. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And we're talking about families this morning. What does it have a kingdom family? Now, this uh, should be the easiest sermon in the world because we all know what a Christian family looks like. It looks like this, right? Okay, this is a Christian family. There you go. Just be that, all right? Just be that. This is Ozzie and Harriet, a sitcom that ran from the uh, late 50s, uh, mid-60s, and some of us grew up on that. Yeah, just, you know, get along, support one another. They're always happy. Uh, they have their tense times for sure, uh, but they work through them, and it's solid, uh, and it's, it's, it's arguably one of the most boring shows ever to show on television. Um, the, the, the biggest drama, I think, that ever happened with Ozzie and Harriet is one time Ozzie went out with his buddies after work and, and came home an hour late and didn't tell Harriet, oh, he was, in, he was in trouble, I'll tell you that. Harriet was mighty miffed at that one, and Ozzie had to do some pretty sweet talking to fix up that mess. Oh, I can tell you, the intensity was just breaking badish. It was just, oh. You know, so. so tune in next week when Harriet has to decide whether she's going to give Ricky and Danny a peanut butter jelly sandwich or a bologna sandwich because she's worried that maybe she's giving them a little bit too much sugar or the intensity. Tune in. So that's the uh, Ozzie and Harriet family. And this is kind of, you know, this post-World War II nuclear family has held up as sort of the golden standard of what Christian families should be. So just be that. Now the trouble is that uh, a lot of our families don't really look like that. And, and if you measure yourself up against Ozzie and Harriet, you can feel like a real loser. Maybe your biggest issue isn't worrying about whether your husband's going to come home an hour late from work. Not really the most pressing issue on your mind because your husband left you three years ago and left you to raise your three kids alone. Or maybe giving the kids a little bit too much peanut butter and jelly, too much sugar, isn't really the most pressing issue on your plate because you had to commit your... 15-year-old son to rehab for being addicted to cocaine. Maybe you have one of these blended families where uh, there's tension, if not warfare, between your kids and your spouse's kids. And that makes for interesting stuff happening. Maybe you're just one of these untraditional modern families. Maybe you're a family that's adopted uh, two kids with fetal alcohol syndrome. And so having blow-ups and meltdowns and emotional outbursts every hour is kind of your norm. doesn't really sound and look like Ozzie and Harriet. Um, or maybe you are one of these families that really, you really do look like Ozzie and Harriet on the outside, but on the inside you're dying because you know that your spouse hasn't really had any feelings for you for almost a decade. Uh, the thing is, most of our families don't quite measure up to the Ozzie and Harriet standard, and I'm not sure even Ozzie and Harriet married up to the Ozzie and Harriet standard. But that can indict you if you think that's the gold standard. Now, here's, here's what I find interesting and kind of reassuring. In Genesis 2, we're given this ideal for what a family is supposed to look like. Uh, a husband and a wife marry, have children, and live happily ever after. That's how it's supposed to be, Ozzie and Harriet. Well, what's interesting and reassuring is that really very few families, if any families in the Bible, actually measure up to that standard. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to have a, a, a family Bible story time. And, and just tell, you know, some of the, let's just review briefly some of the wonderful families that we find in the Bible. We hear a lot about, you know, biblical, traditional family values this day. Well, let's look at it. Uh, warning, this is rated PG, okay? So here we go. 
So let's start with the first couple, Adam and Eve. Here they are. Uh, things are going along very well in Ozzie and Harriet land until Eve gets her husband uh, to disobey God, and that screws up everything. And now this beautiful one flesh suitable partner relationship that we talked about last week turns into a power struggle. Uh, no longer are we in Ozzie and Harrietville. And then they're, they're this couple's firstborn uh, gets jealous over the secondborn, Cain and Abel, and ends up murdering him. That was never shown on Ozzie and Harriet. And, and, and then God has to protect the firstborn because now everyone else wants to kill him. We've already exited Ozzie and Harriet land, first family in the Bible. So let's go forward to Noah, righteous Noah. Uh, so he and his uh, family and his three siblings and their in-laws and all that, they, they're, they're locked on an ark for a year with every species of animal on the planet, according to the biblical narrative. And that was probably a nice, fun thing for about a week. But you'd think I, I, that had to cause them stress after a little while. This stench of the thing uh, would be incredible. And then fighting over who's going to clean up the elephant poop and the rhinoceros poop and all that. There had to be a lot of poop on that ark, uh, you know, with all those animals in it. So you know that that caused tension. And the proof of that is that as soon as the ark lands, one of the first things that Noah does is he gets drunk. He gets <laughs> absolute drunk. And you, I can't blame him. <laughs> Locked on an ark for a year with all that. So he gets drunk, so drunk, he ends up sprawled out naked on the ground. Butt naked on the ground. So his son Ham sees that and makes some jokes about it. And the Hebrew has a connotation of making some sexual jokes about it. So when Noah finally sobers up, he curses, pronounces a curse on Ham, his own son, and on all of his descendants. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine that relationships were all that good between Ham and Noah and the descendants after that. So that's not really exactly Ozzie and Harriet land. And then we come to Abraham, Father Abraham, the righteous Abraham, father of the faithful. Surely he's got the Ozzie and Harriet family. Not so much. Uh, Abraham twice, and in having an encounter with the king. Apparently Sarah, his wife, was pretty hot when she was younger, and this king, king's got interested in her. And Abraham was afraid that he would get killed because they wanted to have his wife. So he convinces Sarah to tell the king that She's his sister, and it's okay to sleep with her. Twice. Father Abraham. Father of the faithful. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine that showing up on Ozzie and Harriet. It, it just, it, it, the thing about it, here's Ozzie and saying to Harriet, uh, Harriet, dear, how lovely, sweetheart, uh, tell the king that you're my sister and have sex with him because I'm nervous. I, I don't think it would uh, be on prime time. It's just, uh, I'm go. And then when they're a little older, um, they're, you know, they're, 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 God had promised them a son, but they're past childbearing years. They're getting really up there. And so Sarah, lovely Sarah, comes up with a wonderful idea. Uh, uh, Abraham, why don't you just go to bed with, <laughs> have sex with my, my, my servant girl here. Uh, she's fertile, and, and that, maybe that's how we're supposed to have a son. Abraham looks at her, and she's okay. So, looking, so he goes, fine. And uh, they have a child. And then Sarah gets jealous because Hagar had a child, and she can't. But it was her idea, hello, but she drives uh, Hagar and her son Ishmael out into the desert to die. And God has to come and rescue them. Sarah was no Harriet. So they're not an Ozzy and Harriet family either. And then let's talk about Abraham's brother, Lot. This guy probably gets the award for the most dysfunctional family in the Bible. Okay, so here he is, and, and he's got three guests here, and all of a sudden there's a crowd around his house, and they want to rape these three guests. And so Lot offers them his two daughters instead. He offers his two daughters out there to be gang raped. He gets the dad of the year award. Then Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed, and so they're exiting the place. But his rebellious wife turns to a pillar of salt. That's not good for the family. And then later on, his, 
his two daughters, and this is right on the Bible, my Bible says that, that, that the two daughters end up getting lot drunk, and one of them rapes him uh, because she thinks the end of the world is coming, so she has to have a child. Hello, uh, this is in primetime Ozzy and Harriet land. Then this, we go to Isaac, Abraham's son. Uh, Isaac had, two, uh, had twins, Jacob and Esau, and uh, Jacob ended up uh, working with the mother to connive, to just kind of trick uh, uh, him getting the birthright instead of Esau. And birthrights were really big deals back in those days. So Jacob and the mother swindle the birthright from Esau. Esau's ticked off. Esau wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob runs to this crazy uncle. This crazy uncle's got two daughters, and one of them's really cute, Rachel. And, and it, Jacob wants to marry Rachel. And so he works for seven years to marry Rachel. Uh, but then somehow this crazy uncle, I forget his name, uh, tricked Jacob. And it kind of, Jacob was the trickster, but he got tricked on because he ends up marrying the older daughter, Leah. And Leah is, is, is older and not good looking and almost blind. But he's ended up married to her. So then he's he willing to, Rachel must have been really good looking because he works another seven years in order to pay the dowry to get Rachel. So he marries Rachel. Now he's got two wives. Hello, that's interesting. Two wives. And, and um, they're sisters, and they hate each other. Happy family. Uh, to make matters worse, Rachel, uh, Rachel can't have children, but Leah can. So Leah has four children. That makes Rachel really mad. So Rachel pulls uh, you know, a play right out of Sarah's notebook and says, Hey, Jacob, why don't you sleep with my servant girl? And, and that way we can have children. Having children is really important in the ancient world. And Jacob agrees to that. So he starts having sex with the, the servant girl and starts begetting children. Well, Leah gets past the, the childbearing years and, and she, she starts to get jealous because Rachel's catching up to her. So she does the same thing. Jacob, why don't you have sex with my servant girl and that way we can have more and more children. And so Jacob agrees. So here's Jacob. He's married to two sis, to sisters who hate each other and they're in this child race. Who can bear the most children? Except not with them, but with their servant girls. Both of them trying... Convincing Jacob to have sex uh, uh, with their servant girls. Uh, not exactly Ozzy and Herod. So Jacob ends up having 12 sons. Only four of them are from a wife. 12 sons. And these, these folks, these are the, the 12 tribes of Israel come from these 12 sons. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but Jacob's not the best father in the world because he loves one of the sons better, more than the, us, or the rest. And he says so. Uh, Joseph, his favorite son. And so he makes him a really pretty coat of many colors just to show his affection for, for Joseph. Well, the other brothers get jealous and, and, and so jealous that they, they plan on killing him. And uh, well, then they decide to make some money off the deal. So they sell him to some Egyptian thugs as a slave. Go back and tell Jacob that, that, uh, that a wild animal ate him. So Jacob, since that was his favorite son, goes into a fit of despair and has to have therapy the rest of his life. Not exactly Ozzy and Harriet stuff. Then let's talk about David, the man after God's own heart, King David. Things started off okay with David. Could have had an Ozzy and Harriet marriage, family. Marries this gal, uh, Michal, who was deeply in love with him. Uh, pays, David pays 200 foreskin uh, of the Phil Philistine foreskin as dowry. That was the dowry price. He had to go out and kill 200 Philistines and bring their foreskin to, don't try not to think about that, okay? Uh, who, who asked for a dowry like that? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't a, a cow a cow or a goat do? It's like, I want 200 foreskin. I've always wanted that, you know? It's just kind of one of my things. So, gets that 200 foreskin and, and marries Michal, and things would have been okay, uh, except that David becomes king and decides to have more wives, because when you're king, you can do that. 
Kind of like this, like, oh, I'll take that one and that one. Ooh, I'll take that one too. So he, he marries one, another and then another and another and keeps on going on. So he's got, got multiple wives. And then he gets some concubines too. Concubines in the ancient world were women who weren't married to the husband, but uh, they still sired children with him. So he's got multiple wives and a lot of concubines. It's a lot of ladies to have sex with, if you ask me. And this is before God invented Viagra. So I don't know how they did that. It was, <laughs> why would you want that many, for crying out loud? Um, but that's nothing compared to his son Solomon, who had hundreds of wives and concubines. Hello, Solomon. <laughs> what are you made out of? So, uh, figure that one out. But, um, yeah, so it's kind of dysfunctional. So, despite having all these wives and all these concubines, David, on top of his palace, is walking around one night, and he gets frisky <laughs> towards this lady who's not his wife, uh, out in, taking a bath outside, like you do, and, and her name is Bathsheba, and she's hot. And so David decides he wants her, even though she's already married. So he sends his guys over there to get Bathsheba, bring her home, have sex with her. She ends up getting pregnant. Now David decides to, to kill the husband uh, and marry Bathsheba to cover up his, 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 his sin. And as a result of that, the, the baby dies. Um, and this is like a horror soap opera. Uh, this is far where we've come a long way from happy ever after one man, one woman, uh, Ozzy and Harriet stuff. No, this is, this, is, this is a horror soap opera. And then, out of this dysfunctional family, because more dysfunction, because his son Absalom uh, decide, he turns against David, wants to undo David, as at war with David, and he ends up killing himself in the process, sending David into a fit of despair. Welcome to Bible Family Storytime. <laughs> it's just delightful. Well, we, when we come to Jesus, we, we're, we're getting closer to Ozzy and Herod, finally. Uh, Mary and Joseph seem like they're solid stuff. But even their family's not quite perfect, you know? I mean... They, they almost did get a divorce before Jesus was even born because Mary got pregnant and Joseph wasn't involved. Thankfully, an angel came in there and, and cleaned up that mess. But now Jesus grows up with the reputation of being illegitimate, and Mary's got a reputation of being loose, and that can't be good. Then later on, we read in the Bible that, that you know, Jesus starts making these outrageous claims about being sent from the Father and being one with God and all that kind of stuff. And, and Mary and Jesus' brothers come to the conclusion that he's gone nuts. So they go out there and try to do an intervention. Uh, they're worried about him. Uh, and so they come to the place where Jesus is teaching. And they say, tell Jesus that the, his mother and brothers are here to get him. And Jesus then says, no, you are my, says to the crowd, you are my mother and my brother and my father and my sisters. And so in other words, he publicly disses his own family, which in the ancient world was huge. Even that family was not Ozzie and Harriet. The point of this Bible family story review here is this. If your family is not ideal, you're in pretty good company. You're in pretty good company. You get the ideal of what God wants in Genesis 2, but no Bible family after that actually lives up to that ideal. They fall short. And the reason is because God, though he has an ideal, he's always been willing to bend it for the real. He bends his ideal to accommodate the real. In the real fallen world, God has to accommodate his, his ideals. He doesn't like divorce. In fact, he hates divorce. But there's a time where he says divorce is going to happen, and so, so I'll get involved with it mainly for the protection of women and children. And, and so he puts some rules around that, and he allows for that to happen. He doesn't like polygamy, but, but he, he allows for it. He doesn't like this idea of owning concubines, and he certainly doesn't like the idea of having sex with, with servant girls. But in this fallen world, that's preferable to having women and children out on the streets starving, being sold into prostitution or other forms of slavery, or just getting killed. And so this is the lesser of two evils. God bends to meet people where they're at. And that's what we have. For all this talk of you know, Bible fa family values, as though there's one kind of family in the Bible, you've got this diversity of families. 
I mean, families look different, wildly different. You got families with one parent, families with two parents, families with, with, with divorced parents, you got families with, with one husband and, and, and several wives, you got families with one husband and a lot of wives, families with one husband and a lot of wives and a lot of concubines and a partridge in a pear tree. It's, it's across the map. All this diversity, because God bends to meet people where they're at. Now, when Jesus comes, he brings the kingdom. And the Holy Spirit's poured out, so we're empowered to move closer to that ideal. And so within the kingdom, Jesus tells us that uh, you know, pol polygamy is off the table, and only concubines is off the table, and divorce should be off the table, and he wants us to strive for that ideal. But even in the New Testament, you find God accommodating the reality of our fallen world situation, because we still live in a fallen world. But what's beautiful is that as far, as far from the ideal as these families were, and they were far from the ideal, as far as they were, God nevertheless, if you read the narratives involving all of these non-ideal families, God nevertheless is working among them, is blessing them, and is using them. And in fact, the greatest heroes of the Bible come out of families that are really, really far from the ideal. And, and what that just tells us, it illustrates this beautiful truth that God is not a God who says, first clean up your act and clean up your family, and then I'll come and bless you and use you. He rather says, let me come and bless you and use you as you are in the midst of all your non-ideal stuff, and then I'll move you closer to the ideal. He's a God who meets us where we're at, a God who accommodates, mercifully, as we were saying earlier, he mercy, his mercy transfers over judgment. He mercifully accommodates us and our families just as we are. And praise God for that, because if God didn't accommodate things, we would all be toast. We would all be toast. This is mercy that allows us to live. And see, if that is the attitude of God, then that's got to be the attitude of the church. It's gotta, if that's how God is towards us, it's how we have to be towards all others. Meeting people, accepting people, embracing people where they're at. This may raise a few eyebrows, I don't know. Uh, but if you find anything wrong in my reasoning here, come and tell me afterwards. I'm open to that. But here's the thing. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a gay couple ask if Woodland Hills would, uh, would uh, dedicate their adopted child. And I said, of course, we'd be honored. Because, look at God allowed me to dedicate my child to him. Even though I'm a non-ideal father, a non-ideal husband, a non-ideal parent, a non-ideal with a non-ideal mind and a non-ideal heart and a non-ideal life, and yet he, he allows me to dedicate my child. In fact, the Bible tells me, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, that I am to confess that I am the worst of sinners. And in fact, it says the same thing about you. We're all to confess that. So how could I, the worst of sinners, he accommodates me, he allows me to dedicate my child, though I'm the worst of sinners, so that means they're less sinners, so how could I ever turn around and say, no, uh, you don't get to dedicate your children because you're not close enough to God's ideal. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Amen. In fact, where do we, amen, where do we get this idea that there's a bar of righteousness you got to meet before you can do something positive towards God? <laughs> Find that in the Bible. This is bar of righteousness. You're not holy enough to do something holy. You know, we're not going to let you do that. Uh, if there is a bar of righteousness that we've got to jump over before we can dedicate our children to the Lord or take communion or anything, well, I'll confess that I'm the first one to be disqualified. And you should do the same thing because you're the worst of sinners. In fact, the only people who could possibly think they could jump that bar of righteousness are people who just forgot that they're the worst of sinners, and they forgot that Jesus told us to regard whatever we see in someone else's life to be a mere dust particle compared to the tree trunk of sin in our own life. People, the only people who could think that they could jump that bar of righteousness are people who actually believe that they're holier than somebody else. And if you're in that category, I'm here to tell you this morning, you ain't all that, all right? No, you're in the same boat as the rest of us. Same boat as the rest of us. 
And see, we are supposed to strive for God's ideal. Yes, he empowers us to do that. But even as we strive for God's ideal, we've got to confess that we all fall short and that we're all in process on this. On this. And, and the beautiful thing is that God meets us at the beginning of the process, not the end. He, comes, he takes the initiative. He's there at the beginning when we're a mess, when everything's undone. And he, 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 he meets us where we're at. He loves on us where we're at. And he'll even use us where we're at. And in the process of him loving on us and using us where we're at, that's how he begins to move us to where, closer to where he wants us to be, praise God. And if God does that for us, then we've got to do that for one another. Maybe you are an Aussie inherit family, and if you are, I bless you. I'm happy for you. But see, even you don't get to judge the rest of us non-Aussie and Harriet families. Um, even you have to confess that you are the worst of sinners. And so for all of us who have non-Aussie and Harriet families, and that's got to be the majority of us, for all of us, I just want us to know that do not be indicted by an Aussie and Harriet gold standard. Do not try to measure yourself up to some Aussie and Harriet gold standard. Don't compare and contrast yourself with anybody, with, with anybody else. Rather, as you are right now, whatever that situation may be, uh, embrace your family as it is. It is what it is. Embrace that. And, and invite God into that. And let God love you and your children in the midst of that. And let God begin to use you in the midst of that. And watch what beautiful thing God can do with that family. Amen? Uh, uh, it, it may be that, that Ozzy and Harriet's off the table. Okay? Too much, too much water under the bridge. You'll never be an Ozzy and Harriet family. So what? You are what you are. Invite God in right where you are. And let him work his magic, his supernatural love and power and grace and mercy, transforming your family from the inside out. That's what it's all about. Amen? Amen. Merciful God, He's a good God. And if that wasn't true, we'd all be toast. So what I want to do now is just look at a passage and draw out two principles that will help all of us uh, work with God to bring about the kingdom, the beautiful kingdom in our families, whatever that's going to look like. And when I say families here, uh, from from this point on, I'm going to be thinking specifically of of a family with one or two parents and children. So I'm talking to that kind of family unit, but. The principles can apply elsewhere, so if you're not in that category, then just apply it to your family relationships, whatever that may be. I, I used this passage last week to talk about uh, kingdom marriages, uh, and, and so now I want to apply it to the family. And the principle is simply seek first the kingdom. Here's the passage. Jesus said, don't worry about what we, don't, saying what we shall eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. For pagans run after all these things. But your Heavenly Father knows that you need him, so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Well, you seek first. As I said last week, that means you seek the kingdom. Make, make the kingdom, being the kingdom and advancing the kingdom, your highest priority in all situations, at all times, with re- relationship to all people, regarding all issues. There's, there's no off button if you're seeking first the kingdom, which means that our family, the highest priority in our families has got to be to manifest the kingdom and to further the kingdom. He says, the kingdom and his righteousness. Now, this concept of righteousness uh, in, in the Jewish mindset has a connotation of right-relatedness. It's not like just personal holiness. It's right-relatedness. So you're rightly related to God, right-related to yourself, right-related to your siblings, your children, your spouse, your grandparents. It's where God reigns. The highest goal here has got to be to make your family, whatever that looks like, a dome over which God is king. And insofar as God is the dome over which you are king... Uh, where, where, where he is king, you will be manifesting right relatedness in, in all your relationships, including between you and your children. So the goal here 
And, and if you have children, then the, among your, included in your highest goal to seek first the kingdom is to raise them kids who seek first the kingdom, who have, have a Jesus heart, uh, who want to live for him. Now, that leads to the question, how do we do that? And I could at this point give practical tips like you know, have, having family devotions and praying before meals and teaching your kids how to have quiet time and things like that. And those are important. I encourage parents to do that. I wish, actually, I had emphasized that more when my kids were being raised. But the most important thing isn't that. The most important thing is simply that you be the kingdom. Parents, the most important thing is that you be the most passionate kingdom person you can possibly be. Your biggest responsibility is to model for your children what it looks like for a person to be sold out for God, manifesting the character of Jesus, which is what the kingdom of God always looks like. Gandhi said, famously said, be the change you want to see in the world. Just be the change. Stop trying to fix the world while you're still broken. Be the change you want to see in the world. The best thing you do for the world is the best thing you can do for yourself, and that is to be the best self you can be. Well, I, I'd like to just now apply that to the family. So, so here's a Bordian quote. Uh, best thing you do for your family is be the kingdom. Be the kingdom change you want to see in your children, and also in your spouse, in your, in your parents, in your siblings, and whoever else you're related to. Be the kingdom. Be sold out, manifest, model what it looks like to be a dome over which God is king. They say that the most important truths in life are caught by children rather than taught. And that's, that's absolutely true. In fact, there's a lot of studies that show that. It's what you do more than what you say that is going to shape them. In fact, to the degree that what you do doesn't match what you say, you're communicating something to them because you're always communicating something to them. And what you're communicating is that what you have to say is irrelevant. If not, altogether false. It's what you do. Kids are born imitators and their eyes are always watching. And so it's what you do, the attitudes that you reflect that, that, that more than anything else is going to shape them. So your most important responsibility is simply to be the kingdom 24-7. And parents, I, 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 I encourage you to do, to do this. I mean, to be the kingdom means that you have Christ on your mind. And, and, and we talk about that in, into your life, into your family life, making that natural so that there's no separation between your normal life and the kingdom. Rather, it, it, integrate Jesus into all of it. Um, and I include, encourage you to have Jesus on your mind and invite your kids in on your thinking process. Uh, open up your life to them so you, you want to give opportunities for them to see the difference that the kingdom makes. And there's a lot that goes on in our head as kingdom people, but we don't automatically share that with our kids. And you have to share it in age-appropriate ways, but I encourage you to share it. I mean, for example, you need to buy a new car because your old car is a piece of junk and it's falling apart. You would really like to get this nice, fancy, expensive car, but you decide to get a smaller, less fancy car because you've committed a certain percentage of your budget to give away to the church and to the poor and other ministries and things like that. Now, you could just do that in private, and the kids would never know it. But invite the, let the kids see that. Talk about that. You know, I, I personally, I really, oh, that'd be so fun to have that. Oh, I, I, I've always dreamed of having a car like that. But, you know, we're going to get this kind of a car. And here's why. Because we really feel committed to, you know, extending this, to supporting others and supporting the church and things like that. You're, show the kids the difference the kingdom makes. you got a nasty neighbor who's just, you know, one of those nasty neighbors. And, and... You could, you know, and that you're, you're, you'd like to just get even and, and retaliate and sink to his level, but instead you decide not to. You're going to be a kingdom person. You're going to pray for the person. Well, don't do that in private. Share that with the kids. Be an open book to your kids because they've got to see that. They've got to catch that. That's how they catch your values and your priorities. And so you just explain to them, our neighbor's kind of being nasty and doing these sorts of things and doing it in age-appropriate ways here, but 
share that, and then, then say, you know, part of me would like to just kind of retaliate and get even. Or maybe invite the kids in on that kind of discussion. How does that make you feel? Well, I want to punch him. Okay, well, I know you do, and so do I, but we're not going to do that because Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us and so on. Look for opportunities to model the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is caught more than it's taught. All that presupposes that your highest priority is to be as full of life, passionate, sold-out kingdom person as you can be, and let your kids on the inside. Seek first the kingdom and let it percolate over to your kids. Second principle is this. Take time to be present. You've got to take time and you've got to be present when you're taking time because the king, it takes time for the kingdom to get caught and, and to percolate over on, on, on others. So in, in the passage that we read, Jesus contrasts seeking first the kingdom with what pagans do. Pagans chase after food and drink and what they're going to wear. They, chase after, they worry about and they chase after those sorts of things. To seek first the kingdom is not to first chase after those things. Not to be worried about those things. Uh, you're consumed by the kingdom, not consumed with the needs of your immediate situation. Now, Jesus isn't saying, don't ever think about what you're going to eat or drink or wear, because uh, you have to think about those things. You have to provide for those things. Uh, but he's, he's saying, don't anxiously chase after those things. Don't be consumed by those things. And that, folks, applies to everything the world chases after. Now, throughout most of history, what the world, what people have chased after is things like food and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear and, and shelter, because the, the need of the moment was to survive. But in Western, modern Western culture, most people have their basic necessities, and so we tend to be consumed with chasing after other sorts of things. And so people chase after having more money, and they chase after having you know, more power, and they chase after getting more pleasure, they chase after the, the nicer house, and the better car, and finer clothes, and they chase after becoming somebody important, uh, and, and in a position of power, uh, and getting recognition, or they chase after um, giving their kids every possible opportunity in the world. Or these days, people often chase after things on social media, and how, how are you looking at social media, and are you staying up with current events, and things like that. So you've got, like, for example, a dad who's working 80 hours a week because, you know, it would be so great for the family if we just had a cabin to, to get away to. And, and, and he works 80 hours a week because that house needs, needs, needs a, a new painting. And, and the car's breaking down. We need a new car. And so he, he's working for the family 80 hours a week. Kids hardly ever see him. Meanwhile, mom, mom's running around ragged, taking the kids to every possible thing because both these parents, uh, what they're chasing after is for their kids to be a success. So you want to find that, 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 that hidden talent, you know, what they're really, really good at, and you want to find it early so they get a head start on other kids during the competition of the world. So mom's running around five-year-old Imani uh, to piano lessons on Tuesdays and Thursdays and, and, and dance lessons on Wednesdays and Saturdays and tumbling on Fridays. And, and then there's seven-year-old seven uh, Asante, and he's so fast, you know, that he could be a superstar football player, so she's got to bring him to football practice on Mondays and go to football games on Saturdays. But he's also pretty smart, so she's got him in the spelling bee club, you know, because he could be a world-class national champion in spelling. Twelve-year-old Aliyah, uh, well, she's, she's just a stud at soccer, and so she's got soccer practice after school on Monday through Friday, and mom's got to go pick her up. But she's also got this flair for art, and so she has to have art uh, classes on Saturdays. And she's really smart, so she's part of the debate club, and, and so they, they've got to be on Tuesday nights. So mom's juggling all these balls, running around crazy. Dad's working eight hours a week. They're all, it's all for the best of intentions. They're all doing it for the family. Meanwhile, they don't have any time for the family. When we chase after stuff, uh, like pagans do... It, 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 it's destructive to our families. 
The thing that families are supposed to be are, is together, and there's no togetherness when you're always running around, let alone having time for kingdom community or kingdom ministry, which is also an important thing for kids to see. What are your priorities? Do you make time for kingdom community and, and, and kingdom ministry? Well, what you're teaching them is that, no, we make time for, to be a success and to get a cabin and a boat or whatever else you're chasing after. And then often when we come together, we're not really together. Uh, people are plugged into their own little technologies, social media. Does this look familiar to anybody? Yeah, see? Um, this is, this hits too close to home. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's, th- th- I think this, that is the main threat to the American family. Right there. Concerning the American family, it is, media is consuming it. I did a little research here. I'll give it quick. So I only got four minutes. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. Um, the average family, average family spends 35 minutes a day together, Monday through Friday, and about two hours on Saturday and Sunday. And by together, it simply means uh, being in the same room and or doing the same activity. So I'm also seven hours a week. Now, that's bad, but, but what makes it way worse is that half of that time, a little more than half that time, is, is watching television. So you're not really together. The average American parent interacts with their child. Dialogue, talking and listening, interacts. The average American parent interacts with a child 10 minutes a day. Uh, For a third of American families, it's seven minutes or less where there's actual interaction time. I I just find that to be astounding. According to the Common Sense Media, which is a watchdog organization on media, not Christian, but just a watchdog organization. Listen to this. Children five to eight, on average, are, are plugged into some form of technology three hours a day. Five to eight. From nine to 12, nine to 12 year olds, it almost doubles to almost six hours a day. And from 13 to 18 year olds, it's up to nine hours a day. There's a study done on uh, suburban 13 year old girls. And they checked their social media, whether phone or computer or iPad, they checked it on average 111 times a day. And that, 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 folks, that is insane. That, that is, and, and some child psychologists are, are trying to refer to this as an addiction. An addiction. Because when kids have to go for a week without any social media, they exhibit, on average, exhibit the same sort of withdrawal symptoms that people go through when they're getting off of narcotics. Uh, folks, I'm not anti-social media, I'm not anti-technology. A lot of it's good and it has techno- you know, educational stuff. And, and having fun with video games and whatever, that's fine. That's fine in limited doses. Although I'll tell you that I'm not a fan of Facebook and I avoid it like the plague. But, but uh, I'm not anti- anti-technology, it can be good, but it's gotta be restricted. Um, we've, gotta, we've got to carve out time. Here's the thing, if, if our job is to seek first the kingdom, and that's our highest priority, then it means we've got to stop chasing stuff that's cutting into that priority. We've got to carve out space for the kingdom to be taught, carve out space for us to get inside our kids' heads and allow them to get inside of our, our, our heads. We've got to carve out space where, where we can rub off on them and, and, and we can actually be a family. So I encourage you to put some restrictions around media use. Know, first of all, know what your kids are watching because there's a lot of demonic stuff out there that's trying to get into your kid's head at a very, very young age. The average boy now encounters pornography at the age of 11. It's, it's crazy. It comes at them. They don't have to look for it. It's trying to get in. So get whatever guards you need to on that social media. Know what they're looking at and know, get, have some awareness about how much they're looking at it. And above all, carve out space where you're unplugged, including you. Turn off the phone. A time when family can be unplugged 
And it's just understood. And this is the time where you play board games together and you talk and you read stories and you laugh and maybe put on music and dance. Maybe you spend time praying. But you're unplugged and you're there and you're present for one another, not distracted. Amen? What good? See, what, what, what good does it do getting the cabin and the house repainted? And what good does it do if little, little Asante ends up being a football star? And, and Aaliyah ends up being a gymnastic star or whatever. What good does it do if, if they're not kingdom people, if they lost the kingdom? What good does it do to win the whole world and lose your own soul, Jesus said? The kingdom's got to be first. So be the kingdom person that God has called you to be. Be sold out. Be passionate. And, and then make time to be present with your kids and with your spouse, as well as with others. Uh, this is the crucial thing. And so ask this question. I end with this. Do you have adequate time? for your spouse, and adequate time for your children. Um, and by adequate, I'm, I'm not going to get legalistic and define that, but, but it's certainly more than 10 minutes. All right? uh, do you have adequate time? And if you don't, and most of us would have to confess we don't, ask the question, what are you chasing after that maybe you're not supposed to be chasing after? What is maybe too important to you? Uh, what's causing you to chase after these things? And as the Lord reveals that to you, will you make a commitment to turn from that, to reorganize your priorities so that you, in fact, are seeking first the kingdom of God and his right relatedness. And you're making time in your life for that to happen. And you're pursuing the kingdom with passion and allowing it to rub off on your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Uh, as I close here, I want to encourage you to stop by there and sign up and, and help the senior citizens in our area by committing to raking, raking up their leaves on October 15th. If you're available then, please uh, help out with this great ministry. Also, uh, really consider, seriously consider uh, signing up for Heroes Gate because uh, we, we want to welcome new families into this church and not having uh, any ability to accommodate their kids is not really sending the message we want to send. And so uh, it's an important ministry to think about that. The prayer teams will be up here. Uh, if you have any need that could use prayer, please come up here and pray with these guys. If you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus and you want to find out what that means, come up here and talk to these guys. They'd love to explain that to you. Father, as we leave here, I pray we do it as people who are committed to seeking first the kingdom of God, being all we can be for ourselves and for our children and for our, the, the, the larger family. Uh, draw our hearts to you and help us to make the hard decisions that need to be made to cut out what needs to be cut out, to include what needs to be included, and that is time to love on our kids. In Jesus' name, and all God's kingdom people said. Amen. And God bless you guys. Oh, love your children. <laughs>